Hello, thank you so much for downloading this episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hamrich, and if you're interested in where innovative ideas meet practical realities in food production, you have come to the right place. First, today I want to give a shout out to a new member of the FOA community and podcast guest alumnus, Kelly James of Mercaris. You can hear Kelly back on episode 204 of this podcast and join us all in the community at www.patreon.com forward slash agriculture. Thanks for joining Kelly. Today's episode is really unlike any of the other 234 episodes that came before. Now, I think you're really, really going to like it. This is a story of Victory Farms, which since launching in 2015 has become the largest fish farm in East Africa and is now the fastest growing tilapia farm in all of Africa. Joseph Raymond, our guest today, started Victory Farms, which is in Kenya and has a really fascinating story. Now, whether you're coming to the show with an interest in ag tech, food systems, sustainability, data, or food security, you're going to find a ton of value in this episode. Before we dive in, though, I want to tell you about another podcast you should be listening to, Off Farm Income. I first discovered this show hosted by Matt Breckwald way back in 2015 when I first started listening to Ag Podcasts. He's now up to almost a thousand episodes, publishing six of them every week, featuring small businesses in agriculture, FFA SAE projects, and rural crime stories and prevention tips. He's been helping people achieve the farming lifestyle since 2014, so if you love agriculture and are interested in that farming lifestyle, this show is definitely for you. Find Off Farm Income on any podcast player or visit www.offincome.com. Thanks, Matt, for supporting the Future of Agriculture podcast. Once again, our guest today is Joseph Raymond, an American born in Cairo, Egypt, due to his father's job in energy. Joseph lived in Africa as a child and then spent another 10 years on a small farm in Wisconsin. After college, he spent five years in investment banking, but always felt called back to Africa. His desire to make a meaningful impact, his love for food and ag, and interest in private equity led him to Ghana before eventually starting Victory Farms in Kenya. His story is a fascinating one here, and I asked if he'd just start our conversation by talking about this feeling of being called back to the African continent. I think there's more than one heartstring being pulled at once. It's Africa itself as a continent is an, an incredibly wild and beautiful and diverse place. And many folks who set foot there feel a certain level of pull. And I don't know if it's, you know, the cradle of humanity is from there and we feel some sense of pull to ancestry or it's so wild that it hearkens another part of the soul. But many people certainly feel that connection to Africa quite quickly and it can become quite strong. The other side of it is, you know, it's really just about how can one develop a career that actually has the positive impacts that you also want to have. And, and my wife and I, she's at McKinsey for a number of years. We often have a big debate around, you know, should you just donate a percentage of your income to helping causes that you feel passionate about, or are your skills and talents more valuable? And, and I'm certainly in the latter camp where I think we can have a huge impact. There's such a talent shortage in Africa today the ability to have an outsized impact is clear. And so for me, it just, it, it really felt like an opportunity to be where I wanted to be in a field that I'm passionate about, which is growing things and being able to have a very meaningful impact from the work I do. Now for you, were you still working in investment banking in Ghana? I wasn't. So through the MBA, I was really seeking to work in basically the, the intersection of private equity, food and Africa 
not having a lot of experience in any of the three except for you know finance background. And so for me, the journey to Ghana was through a mentor who was uh, from a large investment firm related to Cargill, where they were planning to make an investment in aquaculture in Ghana. So I got looped into that transaction. And a three-month due diligence engagement became a three-year CFO slash CEO role for a target company. And after three years of training in Ghana, I felt ready to, uh, to start my own. Wow. And so you were already in aquaculture then in Ghana? I was. I was in I was in tilapia aquaculture. The proposed target was in aquaculture in Ghana. And so I, I had a chance to work with very experienced and skilled professionals out of Minneapolis and, and the global team. And so combining that with the very competent technical team in Ghana, I got a very good three-year you know, degree, so to speak, in high-growth aquaculture. Yeah, and talk more about that. You know, before we get into too many of the specifics of Victory Farms, just aquaculture in Africa in general, the potential for aquaculture in Africa, you know, what are you seeing there that's drawing you to that specific form of food production? From a whiteboarding exercise, this is probably one of the most clear investment theses I've, I've ever seen. Against a backdrop of population growth, where in a span of you know, maybe 30 years, you've got almost 3x population growth in most African countries. At the same time, you've seen a rapid depletion of wild stocks of fish, tilapia being a big part of it, but other, other species, of course, too. So in most African lakes, you're looking at a 90 to 97% decline in wild stocks against a 3x population boom in the same time. You've got this big supply demand gap, which has been met to some extent by imports, but in many scenarios, it's been met with decreased protein consumption in the domestic population, which of course presents a major food security challenge, a humanitarian challenge, but of course, an incredible business opportunity to come and sustainably farm fish and meet that gap. If you were to quantify it in dollars, it's probably between a 10 and $20 billion market gap. And how similar is tilapia to, to the fish that they're used to eating? Well, it, I mean, interestingly, tilapia, so Oreochromus nihiloticus is uh, you know, the, the Nile part is it's from the Nile. So tilapia, you know, it's the second most farmed fish globally, but the species that we farm is actually from the Nile system. And geographically, the Lake Victoria Basin feeds into a few rivers, which then become the Nile. So it feeds into two or three header rivers, the White Nile and the Blue Nile. So essentially, our fish is from this region. And culturally, the folks who live here have been eating this fish for many, many generations. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you're in Ghana. You've got this incredible experience of doing exactly what you want to do, which is you know food production in Africa at a very high level as you know CFO type uh, executive for a well-funded, it sounds like, operation. And you decide to go to Kenya. Now, for, for those not familiar with Africa geography, those two are not neighbors. I mean, you kind of went from, you know, one side of the continent to the other. Why Kenya? What opportunity did you see that led you to, you know, moving to the other side of the continent in order to start this company? Yeah, it, it's a great question. It's let's get back to the supply demand equation. So in East Africa, you've got a population, whether you, know, you include 100 million in Ethiopia or not, but you've got two or 300 million people in the East African block. And you've got this substantial decline in wild stocks of fish, a relative decline in, in per capita consumption of white proteins, frankly, of all proteins. And against that backdrop, this region is sitting on what some folks call the African Great Lakes. But Lake Victoria alone is only second to Lake Superior in terms of surface area. 
but it's uh, Lake Superior is, of course, a cold, a cold body of water. So Lake Victoria is the largest warm freshwater body in the world, and it's not farmed. At least there was no, I mean, there was some very small scale farming when we started five years ago. But essentially, we're the first folks to come in and commercially farm the lake and also demonstrate that, you know, the lake, the temperature, the conditions, the fish, the market are all viable. But yeah, so I mean, again, it gets back to that supply demand equation where this region is a net importer of hundreds of thousands of tons of fish from, from the east, but we're sitting on the best natural resource in the world for tilapia production. So we should be a net exporter. And what's this growing system look like? I, I pictured like the, the salmon farms that have the large circular cages that they're growing salmon out in the ocean. Is it like that or describe it to us? So essentially what we've gotten right on the business model side for production is combining two technologies. So we work with a hatchery system, which was more or less developed 20, 30 years ago in Southeast Asia, very efficient pond-based system. We run a green water pond environment. So that will look a little bit like pictures you might've seen of Southeast Asian operations where you've got you know, dozens of ponds next to each other. Our site is relatively small, maybe only 50 acres, um, whereas Southeast Asia will have 500 acres. But yeah, it's basically a 50 acre land site, which is half covered in ponds. And then operationally in the lake, it's starting to look Norwegian. Uh, we just installed uh, earlier this year, the largest cages in Africa, which are 30 meter diameter or hundred meter um, circumference roughly. So it's a big cage. Um, you know, the cage itself weighs between five and seven tons. Uh, it all has to be handled with equipment. So water-based crane systems and whatnot. So fairly sophisticated and industrialized process in that sense. But yeah, I mean, what one cage can harvest uh, 150 tons of fish. That's 150 tons of fish per year? Per harvest. So if we were to diagonal back to Lake Victoria as a growing environment and a competitive advantage over any other region. Our cycle is basically a 365-day cycle. We, we have very good weather conditions, very good temperatures, because again, the fish is historically from here. And so we're able to run um, a continuous production cycle. And that basically allows us to run two full cycles through the cages per year. Pretty incredible. And take us to the time when you were trying to make this pitch to get permission to do this. You know, you're you're coming in as a foreigner. Uh, you do have the experience, but you kind of want to take their most, pre you know, one of their most precious natural resources and say, look, I'm going to be the person to uh, to utilize this for fish production. What was that like? With the main difference here being sustainability, it's not that different than, I think, the conversations that probably happened 70 years ago in Saudi Arabia. You're sitting on one of the best economic resources for fish production in the world, and you have a few thousand tons maximum of annual production and an annual deficit of 400,000 tons as a country. So that you know, the conversation was actually pretty straightforward. I, it was early 2015. I met with the, the minister in charge of fish and fisheries. And he was a, a really lovely older gentleman. And at the end of a 30 minute conversation, he embraced me with a warm hug, uh, which is not cultural. It was very, very warm. And, and he just said, if you come here, we'll take care of you. You know, I took him for his word. I felt a great deal of trust, actually, which, uh, which, which is risky in any business relationship or government business relationship. But we came, um, we worked very hard for about seven months. He, he gave me 10 requirements, um, you know, different certifications from, from environmental, local authorities, community relations, et cetera. We submitted um, a binder full of information. And within 24 hours, we had our authorization to operate on the lake with zero bribes paid. It's a story of Africa that doesn't get told enough. There are, of course, also horror stories. 
you know, of different magnitudes, but there are competent government officials who are driving a healthy and positive agenda on the continent. And we were very lucky to work, uh, to work with one of those gentlemen. Man, you're going to write a book someday if you haven't already started. I've thought about it. I'm, I'm not sure anyone will read it except me. Uh, yeah, I'll read it for sure. But I, I am wondering about, you know, general advice you'd have to someone trying to enter a new market, you know, kind of a frontier market like this. And I mean, that's that's ambitious to do anywhere, but especially in a new country. Obviously, you, you met the right person and that helped. But what lessons kind of have, have you learned that might help other entrepreneurs that might want to take on a, a venture like that? A couple key pieces, and I think the word frontier and also pioneer are the right words for the type of environment we're in, where we're building an industry that didn't didn't exist five years ago. But I think I think there's a couple really key things to think about. Obviously, there, there, there's a macro strategy piece, which is so important. But I see people get this wrong all the time. If you're trying to sell locally, which you know, again, if you're if you're trying to sell to the export market, you, you, different equation. But if you're trying to sell locally, grow products that people want. Do not start growing catfish in Kenya because no one here likes catfish. And, and if you do the economics in Excel, it looks really good, but, but good luck selling fish. So focus on products that people like. You know, you're not going to change consumer behavior. We've got a thousand or a million years of eating tilapia in this country. And it's, you know, we're playing on that, on that theme. The second thing is, you know, what's your support network look like? By that, I mean, you know, does the government embrace you? Do you have the right requisite experience on your team, either you individually or through, through a co-founder? What does your investor team look like? Your investors are incredibly important. If you've got to turn them upside down and beat them with a stick in order to get financing, that's not a very good partner because as soon as you have a bad round, they're going to do the same to you. So you know, make sure you have the right support network uh, internally, externally, because you know, the, the, the team is going to be, and I don't just mean the team, the people you pay, but your broader team is going to be essential for success. And I'd say the third thing is, is don't be scared. It is scary. You will feel fear. Uh, taking the plunge is incredibly hard, even if you, know, e- even if you feel like you've, you're, you're staring at the most obvious gap in supply demand. It's still very scary. But you don't need to be scared because you're going on a journey. And I mean, before I entered Lake Victoria, all I heard from experts, global experts, was this lake is not farmable. It's too cold. This lake is not farmable. It's too shallow. It's too eutrophic. There's too much water hyacinth. Everybody else has failed. Maybe that's the line I really don't like. Everybody else has failed. Yeah. Okay, great. 99% of fish farms in Africa fail. But probably 99% of many startups in many industries fail. So I wouldn't be scared by the naysayers. It's if you've got confidence in what you're doing, you know, believe in it and, and follow through. Very good advice. And I mean, along similar lines, you know, what do you think you've done differently than some of those other companies that have failed? And, and did any of those warnings turn out to be true about it being too cold or, you know, whatever the case may be? Yeah. So, so far, none of the warnings have been accurate. I have a little bit of hopefully healthy skepticism for expert reports. It doesn't mean that you you don't have to read them. You have to read them all. And it doesn't mean that they're not right. Sometimes they certainly are. But what I found was that the majority of reports, if not you know, close to all of the reports that had been written pre-2015, which viewed Lake Victoria as this uh, impossible environment to operate in, were written by people who had some degree of failure in their efforts. And so it was 
it's important to bear in mind who's writing the report and to what purpose are they writing it? Because, um, you know, the water isn't too cold. I actually think we have fewer diseases than what we definitely have fewer diseases than we had in Ghana, where it was four degrees warmer Celsius. I would just take the export reports with a degree of skepticism. But in order to do that, you do have to have qualified experts on your own team because you can't form these opinions, you know, independent of, of experience. Your second question was, what did we do differently? I think one of the biggest things that we did differently was we combined traditional fish farming experience. My co-founder had you know, more than two decades of experience farming mainly tilapia in Africa. He's just a very gifted aquaculturalist. But the, the, what we did differently was we combined that traditional skill set with my skill set, which is building a modern data-based dynamic business with decentralized decision-making and very heavily reliant on data and technology for decisions rather than what I think prevails in the industry, which is intuition and farmer instincts. And farmer instincts can be great, but they just need to be balanced against the data. And to have a truly kind of data-focused business, you obviously have to have you know, efficient ways to collect and analyze the data. Were, were those tools out there or did you have to develop those internally from scratch? So there's a very bespoke element to what we're doing we absolutely want to be the, the knowledge leader on tilapia production globally. We've probably made pretty significant strides already to that. You say collect and analyze as separate functions, which is correct. So the data collection, that's where we have a lot of our college hires actually involved in the data collection and aggregation. So we've built very large databases with millions and millions of data points. And up until 2019, we had not used that data, but I had been extremely meticulous in building this data set. And so we, we hired a um, data scientist out of McKinsey with a, you know, a kind of a West Coast Silicon Valley mindset. And she has now been with us for 10 months. She's been extraordinary because uh, she's been able to use these data sets to drive real-time decision-making and push that back out to the frontline workers. It doesn't matter if your manager knows what to do. If you've got 500 employees, you need 500 people who know what they're doing. Um, it's a fairly manual process in a lot of what we do. So empowering the staff to make good decisions every minute of every day is a big part of why we're able to, to drive the efficiencies that we drive. And I'll give you one statistic, which is quite interesting, but we're looking at now a 50% CapEx cost per kilo of fish that we produce versus the global number one, who's still about 10 times bigger than us. If you think about that for a second, you know, our CapEx is half of global number one. We're growing at a much, much faster rate than them and, and probably with better margin. So it's, you know, how do you accomplish that? We're not a bunch of geniuses at all. Actually, global number one is a very well-run business. It's been around for 35 years and, and, and very experienced management team. So I don't think we're smarter than them. The big difference is we've invested heavily from day one in a data-based approach and decentralized decision-making which has allowed us to basically just, in some sense, leapfrog where they're at. One thing that's really fascinating about that to me is, and I, I'm guessing here, so, so redirect me if I'm wrong, they're really not your competition, right? Because you're selling locally there versus imports, basically, but you're evaluating your metrics internally, your operational metrics off of them because you know they're a good benchmark for efficiency. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, they're a very well-run business. They sell to, to the leading food retailers in the U.S. It's their main, main customer group. And so, you know, we, we just have fundamentally different views about the long-term 
construction of the tilapia market. And, and I believe it's going to be a make local, eat local competition. And they believe it's going to be you know, founded 35 years ago. They look at it a little bit more like let's do uh, production in low cost countries and send it to more developed countries. And that obviously that's worked for them for the last several decades. But, but looking forward, I much prefer my customer group to theirs. Yeah, state your case on that. I mean, we talked on the show before about sort of the decentralization of the food system becoming more localized. Obviously, there are some real big perks to that, but what makes you think that's going to be a trend that will continue? I mean, if you look at the demographics, we've got a billion customers in our addressable market, obviously not in Kenya, but across the sub Saharan region. And there's challenges to going international, but so are there always. This customer group in the next 25 years or 20 years becomes a 2 billion person demographic. Our primary customer groups are located in small cities. Our fastest growing and highest margin channels are in small cities or towns. It is the most rapidly urbanizing segment of humanity on earth. We're seeing 6, 7% annual population growth in small towns versus 4 or 5% in the African big cities, which of course dwarfs you know, most of the global population growth anywhere. But this 6% annual population growth is really phenomenal to have as a, a structural customer group. But then if you look a bit more granular, our, our customers, we don't sell to end consumers who eat the fish. We sell to market ladies. We've very intentionally built a strategy around them. And we sell to about 10,000 market ladies a month, um, roughly 1,000 a day. So some buy every day, some buy every week. And essentially, we've opened up uh, almost 40 locations across Kenya. Our philosophy is that we just need to get the product as close to a market lady as possible, and she'll figure out how to make the last mile work and source fish from us, and and then, of course, build her own uh, customer base on on her side. And overall, this strategy was a bit of a gamble in the beginning because I hadn't seen it rolled out with the scale or the success that we've had it. And again, this is where you get the naysayers who say, oh, you, you can't possibly run 40 cold chain units across Kenya. You know, it's just, it's just not possible. No one else is doing that successfully or profitably. Yeah, I get that. But the way we looked at it was, you know, we just need to design, a, again, a very data-driven approach to supporting market ladies. We now have a dozen trucks running around supplying all these locations every day. Again, a thousand ladies buying from us. Our trailing average on spoilage, which is a big concern in Africa, is less than a half a percent, um, our, our trailing six-month average on spoilage. That's a number, if you look at post-harvest spoilage in Africa, it's 40%. If you look at it on almost any metric, you're looking at, you know, we've just totally changed the paradigm around moving, moving rapidly perishable products around a very poor uh, infrastructure. And we do it, all 40 locations, all of them do not have electricity. So maybe they have a little LED light bulb that, you know, that turns on every couple hours, uh, but you can't run a refrigeration system on, on the electrical infrastructure of all 40 locations. So they're just small little shops, maybe, you know, 10 foot by 20 foot shops that we rent in small towns. Being able to push the volumes that we push through 40 locations without electricity, rapidly perishable product and get a half a point of spoilage is an accomplishment that definitely would not have been thought possible before we'd done it. And are these market ladies doing any processing or are they basically just serving as, like you said, last mile uh, distributor uh, of the fish to their communities? We've taken a market lady ecosystem development approach and we're probably still early in that concept. But essentially what we're trying to do is help the market lady sell more fish per hour because she's got a very narrow selling window. 
in the afternoon where she sells fish to basically walk by customers who are grabbing a fish to take home to eat or, or share with their family. And she actually has very limited resources during her peak sales moments. And so we've run a lot of tests. And what we found is that the market lady needs to specialize in cooking and the, the sales function, and that she shouldn't be involved in the processing or waste management function at all. So through a lot of testing, I, I think of our market ladies, I think 99% of them now subscribe to this model, where basically we do all of the preparation of the fish before it gets tossed in a fryer, which essentially means taking the guts out and removing the scales. You can also imagine her environment. She's operating typically what someone might call a slum. Um, we call them peri-urban markets because they're actually very, very diverse markets. That they're not, they're not all slums. There's also middle-income markets we operate in, but they look like slums. And she's operating on a very small tabletop, has a fryer by her feet, and very literally will have sewage or disgusting rainwater pushing through, you know, just a few feet from where she's at. Ladies, some ladies have even built tables over the, it's not raw sewage, but it's, it's pretty nasty stuff flowing through these, these, you know, very densely populated areas. And the last thing she wants to do is dump fish guts next to her because it will smell and uh, she's trying to sell a fish product. So, um, you know, the whole area has some level of smell, but it's not fish what we found is that by supporting her and having a zero waste environment for her where she can just fry and sell, it's helped get the ladies to have more successful sales models. And for you, you know, your business model, I, I think a lot of people, when they're looking to, to build a great business, they think of, you know, a high net worth customer that they could just put a bunch of margin in. And, you know, I would imagine because for affordability reasons, this has got to be a high volume business on your end, you know, was that a concern from day one or how have you handled that? Or how do you look at that? I mean, it probably comes a little bit from some, some Cargill exposure, but um, I've always looked at this as a volume business and, and we want to be the leading protein supplier on the continent and the economics, you know, five years ago, this was a pitch and now I can show you with historicals, but the economic support both financially and environmentally that tilapia should be the leading source of protein on, on, on the African continent. And, and fortunately, many countries have a history of eating tilapia. So it's, we're not introducing a new food. So I don't look at this as, you know, how do we get into the high-end supermarkets of Nairobi and sell fish at double the price or triple the price and enjoy a, a fat margin? Because for me, it's not very interesting to have a million customers in Kenya, which is, you know, Nairobi is a city of five or seven million so the top 10 or 20% could afford a premium product. It's, it's not interesting because the wealth pyramid in Africa is just, I actually think it's an obelisk. There's almost no middle class. And then the upper class is super small, but you have a huge base if you consider an obelisk to have a base. And the base is the only really interesting economic segment to sell into. So we've, we've always taken a volume-based approach and, and working with market ladies. Very interesting. And for you, and this is getting back a little bit to the data thing, I, I know that you have incorporated some technology like Internet of Things. Uh, and the way you describe kind of the markets you're selling into, it makes me wonder, how have you solved the connectivity problem? Yeah, I mean, Africa's not so bad on connectivity anymore. Kenya is a leader in connectivity in the region. And Kenya is also a global leader in, in mobile payments. So one third of the economy is transacted on, on M-Pesa, which is the mobile platform uh, for everyone's phone. So it's getting, getting 3G connected to the farm was, you know, it cost us a few thousand bucks. It was nothing. 
So the connectivity is actually pretty easy. Uh, and then once you have connectivity, then you can build IoT systems. And I, you know, I started off looking at quotations um, for our cold chain systems from, you know, from producers in India, Ireland, Norway, Italy, and China. And at the end of the day, you're looking at at, at least a 5x price difference from, from a, a Chinese design system to a, a you know northern European design system. And uh, oftentimes it's actually 10x. And it's just like, I'm confident that we can run with spare parts and have sufficient redundancy and then use data and, and some level of predictive algorithms to give us enough foresight into where we think things will go wrong. So when we, when we sell um, whatever it is, 25 tons of fish today, you know, we, we didn't have orders or prepayments from any customers. We had to predict how much fish we were going to sell into all the different markets. And, you know, and it started raining at three or four o'clock in the morning. So that, that also played in. I could go through each stage of the business, but we actually have very simple data constructs built, but they deliver very high value levers that mid-level guys or gals, you know, when when a decision gets made at four o'clock in the morning, there's no managers who are awake. It's a supervisor level person who's got to make a decision to to ratchet back sales today because in, in most of our markets, it's open air and open air and the muck, people don't go shopping as much. That, that's where we just try to be extremely agile, where these decisions can be taken and, and the data and analytics are flowing to folks who can make uh, better decisions than the management can. Well, you mentioned wanting to be the largest tilapia producer on the continent. And, and as I understand, you are the fastest growing today and, and possibly the largest in Kenya. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, certainly by far the largest in, uh, in East Africa. If you add up the you know, number two through five, I think we're bigger than all of them combined. So we're, we're, we're definitely the regional leader. Uh, and then there's a very good competitor, uh, which is, you know, we're about five years old now and they're about 10 years old. It's down in Zambia and they've also started international expansion and a very competent management team running um, that operation. And they are, as of today, uh, you know, about 50% bigger than us, but we're growing 10% a month and they're growing at a lot slower of a rate. So if you do the math, you know, sometime next year, we'd, we'd hope to take the leadership role on the continent. And as I understand, you know, COVID-19 has not slowed down your business at all. In fact, it may have accelerated it some. Yeah, I mean, everyone's probably heard now that, you know, COVID-19 is the great accelerator. We've had a business model, which, which again, has its roots in my Cargill era of what the future of food is going to look like in the protein space in frontier markets. And my takeaway from a lot of different sessions with very senior folks there is that we're going to start to see more regionalization rather than globalization. The advantages that were held by producers, whether it's Ukraine or the U.S. or Russia, on certain commodity productions, some of those advantages are start the, the, the delta between them and the next best is starting to narrow. And for a variety of reasons, national interests are focused a lot more on food security today than they were 10 years ago. I mean, Kenya was food secure in 1980. Today, it imports half its calories. We have pretty competent government officials in place, and, and they're aware of that and, and very actively trying to create strategies to reverse this trend. And so, yeah, what, what we see is, is a regionalization of food production. And in our view, COVID has been a great accelerator because so many, I mean, even our number, one of the number one importers of, of fish into East Africa has, you know, has been tiptoeing around working with us, which was you know, five years ago a joke. Everyone has recognized whether it's the leading retail chain in East Africa who's now engaged with us 
or or the leading importers. But you know, th- these are sophisticated players. They can see that the, the the Chinese import game is probably coming to an end at some point, or at least it's going to face ongoing challenges in the future. And they they want to localize supply chains. I know you had said, you know, the the government official that you first started working with had sort of a list of, uh, I don't know what you called them. I don't want to say demands, but like a, a list of terms, you know, that you'd have to meet to keep things going. I'm sure some of those had to deal with sustainability. I mean, being right there, you know, in and, and around Lake Victoria, I'm sure it's very, very important that your operation doesn't negatively harm you know, the environment. So can you talk about how you've managed that and, and you know, the standards you hold uh, Victory Farms to when it comes to sustainability? It's extremely ambitious. And we made the decision at the onset to build sustainability at the core. And I, I hold the view, and I'm getting more and more confident that this will come true, but I hold the view that we can be the sustainability leader in tilapia production globally. And I do personally think the global number one today is a very well-run and relatively sustainable business on the spectrum of things. I just have a, a, a strong passion that where the earth is at today with respect to, to whether it's climate change or biodiversity or all these different things, we need the next generation of businesses to take a different mindset. Uh, I don't believe the UN will solve these issues. I don't believe national governments are solving these issues and I don't think consumers have enough have enough accuracy in labeling to be able to make the right decisions. So who's left to help us solve these these macro sustainability and environmental issues? And I, it really may fall back on businesses. And I believe a lot in the power of capitalism. So I think the next generation of businesses needs to stop talking about uh, doing less harm to the environment or mitigation or conservation. And we need to flip it to restoration. Businesses need to actually promote environmental uh, benefits. So in my view, tilapia farming can be carbon negative. I think we'll be able to prove that quite soon. And uh, also in my view, tilapia farming can have a net positive impact on biodiversity. So we're working with um, a couple universities now. We've set up an environmental protection zone, working with all the local communities. You can imagine it's not terribly simple. A lot of folks are below a dollar a day in these communities. We've got a 50% HIV infection rate in our neighborhoods. This is a very, very depressed part of the world, but we've worked together with these communities. We've set up the environmental protection zone. And about three months ago, we discovered a fish that was previously thought to be extinct for the last 10 years. And now, of course, we're going we're gonna to raise a bit of grant funding into that. And we'll start breeding in that fish and reintroducing its, its fingerlings back into the lake to give it a chance. You know, biodiversity is such an important piece of the conservation story. And and again, are we just going to conserve or are we going to restore? Are we going to actually, you know, breed 10,000 pieces of this formerly extinct fish and and start releasing 10,000 pieces a month? With our infrastructure, we can do that for about $1,000 a month. If you look at the amount of money that's getting poured into the conservation sector, and frankly, lots of it not having the outcomes that we all want... I think working with businesses on direct restoration initiatives that leverage your core skill sets, you know, we can probably do it for 5% of the cost of an NGO, just because that's our core competency. So yeah, so we, we, we take a really strong view around it. And I think the, big, the, the other one around carbon negative is, you know, we'll be installing a number of initiatives um, starting this year, but going into next year, where we expect more than half of our carbon footprint to be erased. And it's not a silver bullet. It's a variety of initiatives that we're running up and down our supply chain. And they're effective. They're working. And we're seeing them scale. So I think that businesses have an enormous amount of power to drive positive change 
but they need to take ownership and leadership and, and act like a driver. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Along those lines, you know, you're in a business that does have, you know, it's, it's more of a high volume rather than a uh, high margin, as we've discussed. You, you obviously do have some CapEx. I know, although I know you said, you know, based on output, it's, it's a fraction of, of others out there. But in order to achieve the ambitions you have for the business, it is going to require some investment. I, I think you already alluded to the fact that you had investors already come online. How difficult is it to find the right investor? Or maybe a better question is, who is the right investor for this type of project? I think you need to define the project by stage. And then the right in, as, as the company matures, the right investor profile also matures. Our main investor is one of the, the Salmon Titans. Um, he's the founder and, and um, CEO for a number of years of, of Marine Harvest. Uh, his name's Hansden Beeman. You know, he's built a business to very substantial scale in Chile on, on, the, on the salmon side, and then they IPO'd it. And it doesn't matter which conference on, on which hemisphere I go to, everybody knows this guy. And he's been a wonderful mentor, of course, a source of capital and a source of confidence for investors who are more financial, less strategic, who just don't understand the risk profile of our business. Of course, we have risks, but some risks are actually very small. So, you know, Will we be able to sell fish to a population that's eating 10% of the animal protein that they want to be eating, uh, which has historically for many generations eaten tilapia? Will we be able to sell tilapia? That's the wrong question. And that's what investors typically ask is, you know, can you sell that much fish? You could sell 10 times the amount of fish, maybe even 20 times the amount of fish that we're selling today. The the question is, what's your cost structure going to be in delivering that? And that's where having this uh, Homestead Beeman on board He can kind of take away the nonsense questions very quickly and help everybody focus on the much more relevant questions. As the company gets bigger, you you know, Hans, of course, is a a private investor. So as the company gets bigger and and next year, we're planning on running a much larger fundraising round than we've done in the past five years. We're finishing our what I call phase one. We've got, you know, we'll get to 10,000 tons of production early next year. Um, And so then the question is, you know, what do we do next? You know, we're, we're looking at probably a 1 million ton fish deficit in East Africa. So we'd like to start building the building blocks now, not to grow from 10,000 to 20,000, but to start looking at how we get, you know, how, how do we get to 100,000? How do we take 10% of this market? For your ambitions to, to grow to the level that you want to grow to, you know, you're going to need uh, the right people on the bus. Can you talk about, you know, what are the critical skill sets that you're looking for to kind of continue growing in the direction you're going? Yeah, absolutely. It's, HR has been and remains our number one focus. Having the right people in place at every level is essential for success. So we've, we've always taken that approach very, very seriously. We have a team today that's getting us to 10,000 tons, and, and the same folk can probably get us to 20,000 tons. But our ambitions to, to, get, you know, to start looking at a 50 or 100,000 ton business model across East Africa, we're starting to enter a new territory where we, we're going to continue to need new skill sets. And we are certainly interested in, uh, as this new phase begins, engaging with folks who have a background either in general ag management or specifically in aquaculture. But um, the way we build the business, there's absolutely a need for the, the ag generalists and the aqua specialists. You know, if somebody wants to reach out either for employment or for any other reason, just general curiosity, where's a good place to send them? Yeah, certainly on the website, you can find our, our recruiting address, which is recruit at victoryfarmskenya.com. 
And we would, we would love to have uh, applicants from a range of different backgrounds. We're, we're certainly growing today and, and would love to, um, love to explore that. Boy, I, if I was at a different stage in my life, I think uh, that would be something I would be all over. But Joseph, thanks just in general for the conversation. Really, really enjoyed this. Very, very uh, just enlightening what you're doing over there. And, and I think it's, a, it's an interesting model and one that we haven't explored anything like it on the show before. So thank you. It's really been a pleasure, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Well, thanks so much to Joseph Raymond for being on the show. And also shout out to Trent McKnight, my friend who recommended I reach out to Joseph. If this project interests you, I highly recommend you visit their website, www.victoryfarmskenya.com. I know they're continuing to grow and hire, and I think it's a really exciting endeavor to be a part of if it fits. Thanks also to those of you who have left ratings and reviews uh, on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Had one recently from podcast listener and uh, Twitter friend, Mac Hussein. Uh, Mac says, uh, consistently impressed with this podcast. Tim is great at having a mix of guests and being genuinely curious enough to give space to a range of perspectives without passing judgment. He asks fantastic questions too, pushing guests to get the practical realities of the ideas they're talking about. Thanks so much to Mac and all of you who have taken the time to leave a rating and review. If you haven't yet, I really do appreciate it. It helps us spread the word and validate this podcast to other potential listeners. But as always, thank you so much for your time and your attention. I really don't take it lightly. I'll be back next week with another story of ag innovation. Ag innovation.